everybody, David Sylvan here. Welcome back to another episode of our Health Voyages podcast series. Today we've spent a lot of time speaking with uh, a number of our internal colleagues, our internal partners. We've had a, somewhat of an inward focus. But it's critical that we also acknowledge that we're part of a broader ecosystem, that we have strategic partnerships, and each of these plays a, a very distinct and important role in terms of how we do what we do. And of course, there's a symbiosis there. Today is one such example. We are uh, privileged to be downtown Cleveland in the offices of Smart Shape Design with CEO and founder Mike Matuzak. Hey, Mike. Hey, David. I'm fine. Thanks. And hello, everybody. So, Mike, our relationship with you, our relationship with your company, critical from a number of perspectives. You not only influence many of the technologies that we use from other vendors, other partners, but we also work directly with you so that you might influence and bring the appropriate design focus and lens to some of the products and technologies that we're looking to stand up and spin out. So perhaps orient the audience with regard to who is SmartShape Design, uh, your role, your function, how you lean into partnerships with your strategics, and then of course a little bit about yourself. Sure, well my background uh, I'm an industrial designer, so like a product development is my background. Uh, industrial design is a term that maybe is more understood now, but it's sort of a misleading, sounds like we design factories, but industrial designers focus on, uh, focus on user needs, identifying unmet uh, needs and opportunities to invent and design new products to meet those needs. And um, those products will ultimately need to be manufactured. So industrial designers work with engineers, and together we design those products not only to meet the needs, but to be commercializable as manufactured products. Tell us about SmartShape, how you got to the decision to, to, to um, formalize this uh, market offering, if you will. What, uh, what led to that type of decision? Well, I studied industrial design in undergrad, and I, it was a field that I really enjoyed. I was thinking of becoming an engineer uh, or an architect, and then I discovered industrial design, which is like architecture of products. And I, after graduating, I worked in a design firm in the Detroit area. And after working there for about uh, four years, I really wanted to be self-employed. I was determined to start a business but I didn't really want to start a design, a design consultancy. It, it wasn't the, the, the scalable type of business that I wanted. But a guy has to make a living, so when I left my job to be self-employed or self-unemployed, as it, as it were at first, uh, a guy has to make a living, so I uh, did freelance design work and uh, got became too busy, started to hire some designers, and, and ultimately I have a design firm. Tremendous. How, how many years has uh, SmartShape been in business? Well, this is uh, 30 years and 30 years now, last year. Fabulous. Uh, yeah. Congratulations on that. that so, Mike, flies. you know our platform. You know that we're, uh, we're largely a, um, from a core tenant perspective, uh, we, we um, hitch our bridle to human-centered design as a, as a set of core principles. We're very familiar with our design process. From an industrial design process, tell us a little bit about uh, about what that looks like. 
SmartShape, our design process usually originates with some business context. Somebody identifies uh, e either that starts with uh, a technology looking for applications or a, a, someone identifies a need and uh, there's an opportunity to meet that need and, and uh, commercialize a product uh, in, in the market. And um, from there, the, the process also starts with discovery. And by discovery, we look at to reconsider what is that uh, the, the business context? Are we looking at, the, is this the right business uh, opportunity? Uh, what is the need? Is it, uh, the, is it part of a larger need? Uh, so we're, we're really trying to discover uh, opportunity still. And that involves uh, a lot of observation and methods to, to really understand the user need. And in, in throughout this process, we are diverging and converging. So we, at first, we want to uh, exp exp expand and diverge uh, and to broaden our exploration into uh, what is the problem we're solving? Is it the right problem? And uh, what, is, what, what, is, what is the need? What other needs are, are related? Before we start to converge on a particular need and particular user, and then we, def then we converge and de define what, what problem are we going to solve and who, is, who will be our customer. So that's the beginning part of the process. All right, so Mike, if I, if I understand this correctly, you've, you've worked through the business context, you've gone through a process of discovery, you've begun the, the define, the definition stage. Surely it, uh, it doesn't end there. What happens next? This is where the, the fun really starts in the ideate process. And this is a highly iterative process that where it's a, and it's a multidisciplinary process. We want to have the different uh, the technology, the business case, and the user-centered design all represented here, iterating together to uh, come up with the best solution to meet the product line. And I'd imagine once you start down the regulatory pathway, the FDA process, uh, uh, in human trials, et cetera, that takes on a life of its own. Yes, right. And uh, one, one thing we, we see is, uh, we think is uh, maybe a mistake is to for companies to go to move too soon from the um, concept feasibility phase into the design uh, uh, control, the quality control phase, because uh, people want to move the process faster and get into testing. But then once we converge and define the problem, we have to have a very formal written uh, definition and product spec, and then everything is done under quality control systems, and it's a very um, different process than, than non-medical device, uh, and partic particularly, because, particularly because you cannot just make changes without uh, uh, documenting the changes and justifying those changes. And then when you do make changes, you have to redo validation, and it's just a much more constrained process for good reason. Once you start moving into that quality control uh, phase, you everything has to be uh, documented, any changes has to be justified and so forth. It's just a, a much more difficult uh, way to innovate. What percentage of your focus, your, your, uh, your business, um, is in the life sciences in healthcare? I'd say in the, over the years it has uh, grown, that percentage, from 
a small percentage 20 some years ago to now uh, somewhere between half and uh, three quarters, wow. maybe maybe two thirds of our of our work. Uh, most of the time, it varies, but most of the time, it's half or more. Differentiate for us. We've talked about medical devices. What about healthcare IT? And, and maybe the answer is the same if it was just a general IT solution. But um, I would infer that when it's uh, a software underpinned outcome or solution. Your, your barriers are far lower, and your ability to iterate and, and pivot is, is a lot more trivial. I'm not saying less important, but differentiate between uh, the design process for something that would be uh, medical device grade versus something that would be healthcare IT uh, underpinned. Well, I would say that, that it, uh, it's a, there's a similarity between the medical device and uh, healthcare IT. Uh, in the the regulatory, the, the you know the the uh, need to control and uh, and uh, justify and validate any changes, but the difference is prob probably even greater in the software IT world. The difference is even greater between medical and non-medical, because in the in the uh, software world, there's uh, this uh, race to market and do a lot of uh, you know there's the um, lean startup approach of actually iterating in the market, you know, rush to market with an MVP, and because it's software, you can change it on the fly and fix bugs uh, within the market. There's that, um, that trend to, to move faster to market and then iterate, you know, very quickly to fix whatever's wrong. Well, you, you can't do that with, with people's lives, with uh, healthcare or airplanes and so forth. So. That's that's where the difference. So, Mike, this is a, a crystal ball type question. Um, look out five, 10, 15 years, even a, a near lens on on recent experience at CES, etc. What are you seeing from a product and design thematic perspective that uh, that's catching your eye? Mm, well, that's that's a great question. That uh, five years is is a long time and. In, in what's happening today, 10, uh, 20 years is, is going to be really amazing to see, see it unfold. But I would say from a design, product design uh, uh, perspective, including both physical products as well as digital products like apps, interactions, there's a, a trend toward the need for simplicity in design to, to uh, make the complex simple because with uh, a product being no longer just a three-dimensional uh, object, uh, but like it was 30 years ago, now it has these new dimensions that are like like magic, actually. You know, with the IoT connectivity, uh, so that this this object here can be connected to a million other objects instantly at the same time. It's just like magic, and it adds all kinds of new possibilities for invention and, and creating systems and, and solving problems. So that trend is just going to, it's, it's amazing to think about what will come with connectivity. And uh, then on top of that, artificial intelligence will start to, you know, the possibilities for automating things that we do, parts of, of, of things that we do in learning to um, automate those things for us. 
that's amazing. Um, augmented reality, we're already starting to see that find applications in things like uh, physical therapy where we can, again, partially automate things that people would do. So it's, it's really amazing to think about what the future uh, will bring. But those are the trends that, uh, where that's, that's where things are going. And as, as you add all this complexity, like an old telephone used to have a lot of buttons on it. And if you, at one point, they added another button for um, mute and another button for, uh, you know, hold or whatever, you're adding 10% more complexity and 10% more functionality. Well, now a, a cell phone has a million, not exaggerating to say, could have a million times more, much, a million times more functionality, but it's, it needs to be simple and accessible. So now a, a cell phone is like a more or less, a, or a phone is more like a slab of glass. You know, it's really simple. And we need to take all this complex possi uh, possibility and simplify that and to make it accessible. So that's going to be one of the challenges in, in the future as things get more and more complex, along with other challenges like security and sure. uh, uh, artificial intelligence has its own set of, uh, you know, like what could go wrong. Right, right. So we've talked a little bit about the micro. Let's talk a little bit about the, the macro from the perspective of our um, ecosystem here in Northeast Ohio. You are one of the... Um, regional catalysts, evangelists, if you will, you, you, um, you bring to, together constituents from, from, from various um, uh, parts of the ecosystem, if you will, for, uh, for interactions. Give us a couple of minutes of commentary on where you see the local ecosystem from the perspective of, you know, compare contrast to other regions. We, we, we hear a lot uh, in the press with regard to what we're not doing uh, successfully, what we could be doing successfully, especially when it comes to um, sourcing and cultivating and supporting early stage companies and, uh, and startup space. Give us some thoughts on that topic. Yeah, a lot, is, a lot has already been said, as, as you've mentioned, and uh, I tend to be uh, less pessimistic than, than some of the uh, assessments, but I, I think that uh, Nothing happens without an entrepreneur, whether in, in a big corporation or a startup with an idea or an individual. Nothing happens unless uh, an entrepreneur perseveres and, and, and makes it happen. So I think we need to, it would be to our benefit to uh, continue to cultivate entrepreneurs. And that could start with kids in, in middle school, you know, 15-year-olds today, 10 years, a decade from now, those would be the 25-year-olds that are starting companies where new technologies are emerging that we don't know about yet. So that would be one thing is to start to cultivate a, uh, an ecosystem of entrepreneurs and then to, to support those entrepreneurs uh, with, uh, they need investment. One of the, we, we tend to uh, entrepreneurs tend to move from Cleveland to uh, Silicon Valley because of investment money that's out there. And if we uh, can and grow more of, a, uh, of an investor support system here in Cleveland, then we can uh, keep some of those entrepreneurs and support them better. 
So I, I think those are the, the two main areas. And then corporate, uh, and the, along with that, corporate support. The big corporations, uh, some of them can be first customers and offer a real boost to uh, startup companies. Great, yeah, great, great feedback. We all know that we are uh, influenced by our experiences and um, you've certainly, um, you certainly reflect the, 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 the accumulation, the assumption of all the experiences that you've had, Mike, and uh, with, uh, with due apologies to, to any Forrest Gump uh, references here, mm -hmm. but one day you walked across America and uh, when you were done with that, you walked across Japan and you walked across Korea and uh, you're, you're a good halfway through walking across China. And I, one day I remember saying to you, Mike, is this a, a, a journey or a quest? And you said, yes. So tell us a little bit about um, what motivated you to do this, what's motivating you to do this, and as importantly, how you feel it's influencing you from a personal and professional perspective. Yeah, that's... Um you mentioned Forrest Gump, and it's not an exaggeration to say that that influenced me or probably actually inspired this. I remember reading about walking the Appalachian Trail. That really appealed to me. And then I think seeing Forrest Gump, I, re I remember that just seemed so awesome to get up and, and go and, and keep going like he did. So I had this idea germinating, and I never thought that it was really feasible or you know, for, for several reasons. One, you know, whether, whether I could do that, and uh, another is to get away from, you know, have all my plates spinning here and get away from my busy life. There was a time 10 years ago when I couldn't take a one-week vacation for a few years uh, because of, you know, you own a business and it, it sometimes owns you. You have to, it, it, you have to do what it demands. But um, I've hired a lot of uh, very capable people that um, allowed me to start to think maybe I could actually do this and uh, so it was an idea that was brewing for a while and then when then I I guess three and a half years ago I, I started in New York and uh, walked to Los Angeles and jumped in the Pacific and at that time that's all I had planned to do walk across the US and when I jumped in the Pacific about 25 or 30 pounds lighter uh, thinner than I am I I thought I was done. I don't I think it's a recommended weight loss program. No, <laughs> no it's, uh, I was eating, and I was eating double everything. I was trying to eat as much as I could, but I was just burning so many calories. But when I jumped in the Pacific, I thought, I, wow, I can do anything. It was a fantastic experience, and it was just, an, I can still always, always remember that feeling uh, that day on the beach at Santa Monica. So I thought I was done, but then a few months, as some months went by, I started to miss it. I missed that experience. I missed being on the road and just seeing all this part of the world that we don't see, the in-between part. And I uh, decided, I was thinking, where else should I walk? And then I decided, I'll walk, just continue and go all the way around the globe. So I, uh, next in the, was Japan and Korea, and uh, now I'm uh, getting close to uh, reaching the Myanmar border uh, with China. And I just love it, and I'm I'm eager to go back and start, you know, where I left off and continue my my journey. So I I love it. It uh, one thing it just I feel like I'm in another world. When I'm here, I'm in my, you know, we've got all I'm in my hamster wheel. I've got all all of my plates spinning and things that um, 
hamster wheel that I create. But when I'm out there walking through the mountains in rural China, I'm, it's a different life and it's a different world. And it's, it's nice to get out of my box. You know, I feel that uh, this is where I think it makes me a better designer because we all live within and think within the box that we, we live in, you know, our paradigm. And uh, to, to get out there and see different cultures, how different uh, societies have evolved, different practices and, and uh, ways of doing things, just broadens my mind. And if I could elaborate on that more, I think that it, it uh, design, two things that make a, a good innovative designer. One is uh, a talent for uh, creative, um, uh, a talent for um, a creative imagination. To have a two things that two things that I think make a for a, a great innovative designer. One is a creative imagination to be able to see possibilities, see a problem, and see possibilities. And uh, the other is to have a head full of of uh, ideas of possibilities. Like I just recently finished read a book about Leonardo da Vinci. Amazing guy, uh, extremely creative, great imagination, extremely curious. But if you know he were to invent an autonomous vehicle today, which he did, it wouldn't win an eighth grade. Uh, uh, hackathon because he's although he's very creative all he could work with are the the uh, things that he's aware of gears leaf springs and that type of mechanism he wouldn't say well first I need to invent electricity invent connected the connected cloud we we can I think that innovation is largely integration we're integrators you know so a, a highly creative person with a great imagination can see a problem, and then they're pulling all these different experience, pulling from all the experiences and things they've seen and things they're aware of to integrate those into possible solutions. So the more that a designer can think outside of the box, uh, the better. So any kind of experience where you're getting out of your world and exploring different worlds is gonna make you a better designer, a better innovator. When you look to, to build your team, and as, as you have, what do you look for? What differentiates a good designer in your mind? Well, that, I think that people think of uh, people as a creativity, and it, creativity in, uh, well, I think people think that some people are just creative and uh, have a great imagination which is true, but that alone doesn't make someone a good designer. Uh, like Leonardo da Vinci, for example, was a very extremely creative and uh, imaginative. Uh, but if he were to design a product today, it wouldn't win an eighth grade uh, uh, hackathon because he doesn't, he's not aware of connectivity and uh, AI and uh, battery technology, uh, all of these things. So that I'd say that a designer, in addition to their creativity and imagination, is to build an awareness of, of all of the types of technology and uh, different possibilities for innovation out there because it's that ultimately we're like great 
integrators where we are seeing a problem and then a creative person's mind will quickly pull from all of the things that they've seen, all of their experiences to find solutions. So the more awareness you have, the more you can um, think out of the box. So we reference the fact that you uh, play a stitching role, if you will, within the local and regional ecosystem from a, an entrepreneurial perspective, from an innovation perspective. Give us an example of how you try to, to enable that, uh, that type of gathering, that type of coalition, Mike. Well, there are a number of great events around town to stay connected and, and know what's, what's happening and, and learn. And we're trying to contribute to that with uh, an event that we hold called the Get Smart Happy Hour. And it started monthly, but now we're doing it every other month. And we have uh, some uh, leader, entrepreneurial leader, uh, thought leader in the area uh, tell their story. And in February, February 6th, we uh, had David Levine. Uh, he started a company called Wireless Environment with a product brand, Mr. Beam's LED Lighting. He started that at the, right at the forefront of LED lighting, and he grew it uh, to, um, to where it was acquired by Ring Home Security, which was then soon after acquired by Amazon. Another speaker, for example, was uh, Mr. David Sylvan of <laughs> UH Ventures, and that was the, kind of a problem to have him so early on because he set the bar so high for everybody else that it's been a bit of a challenge. You know, to, Mike uh, Flattery will get you everywhere. To, it's been a it's been a challenge to live up to that. And now we uh, we have to keep going up the up the ladder in in quality of uh, of, of of guests. <laughs> The, uh, you mentioned the Da Vinci book. Um, who's the book by, Mike? Oh, that, that book is by Walter Isaacson. I happen to have that right here. That was, that was given to me by a friend, Warren Goldberg. Sure. And uh, I really enjoyed that book, but although he gave me the book, I actually listened to it on an audio book because I find much more, it's much easier to find time to listen to a book right. at 1.6 speed than uh, to, to actually read it. But that's a, that's a great book. I really good, good, and we're, uh, you know, Warren's a friend and, uh, and, uh, and certainly an entrepreneur with whom we have, uh, we have some, some interesting interaction. Anything else you can recommend? Another book uh, that was given to me by Gary Wenick at Case uh, is The Longevity Economy written by Joseph Coughlin. And uh, jo he is the founder and director of the MIT Age Lab. Very interesting book, looking at the, the, uh, the problem of the growing uh, age, aged, aged society, and then how do we uh, design products to meet their needs, which he argues is being poorly done right. in many ways now, and, and some great suggestions to look at. Yeah, another book that I just finished, uh, a few weeks ago was uh, Loon Shots by Safi Bacall, and I really enjoyed that book. He looks at innovation in, in a couple different types of innovation, uh, and he focuses on how to cultivate crazy ideas that wouldn't actually materialize into the great things that they've materialized into without proper cultivation and support action there. 
tremendous anecdote. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been uh, tremendous. I'm sure the listeners will uh, will concur, and uh, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your input, and uh, look forward to the uh, next opportunity. Thank you.